Hey, it's Andrew, and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Did you know that you can subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts to have new episodes delivered to your feed twice a week on Wednesday and Friday? All you have to do is pick up your phone, navigate to your podcast app, and search for Door County or Door County Pulse podcast and click subscribe. If you're a longtime listener or if this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy the Door County Pulse podcast. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How's uh, how's post-pond hockey treating you? It's wonderful to be off of the ice. But yeah. Pond hockey was a great time. A beautiful day. You were out there filming, and uh sun was shining all day. Tons of people came down just to, to check out the games, and have a, a beer or a brat and uh yeah it was an awesome awesome day out there yeah, the weather seemed to be really great too the sun was out compared to the you know all of the snow that we got the following days yeah we yeah, we hit you know you, if you look at the last few weeks and the snowstorms we've gotten the the 50 below wind chills we've gotten the sleet and rainstorms we got somehow we caught our, our tournament just fell in this little window where it was awesome. And actually Fish Creek Winter Games got lucky too. With all those different days of awful weather where everything was canceled, those two Saturdays ended up being like two of the nicest days of the winter. I wonder if attendance was higher on those days too, just because of that. It seemed like the, the clouds parted and everybody came out because they, it was the first day they were able to get outside. Yeah, I think especially at Winter Games or Winter Festival, uh, it did seem, because that was right after like the, the cold snap, that people were just like, Thank you for giving me a reason to get out of the house. So everyone seemed like really happy around Fish Creek that day. Is this the most amount of snow we've gotten uh, in the last like couple of years? Is this a historic kind of snowfall? Yeah, I think we I know that a lot of records were set with the snow the other day for snowfall in a single day. In some parts of the state, they were getting 16, 17 inches, not particularly in Northern Door. Um, but I think Sturgeon Bay had one of their record, if not a, a record snowfall or precipitation because they, I think that's how it was measured by like actual inches of precipitation, which depending on how cold it is, snow may not be the same as precipitation. Right. I am no weather expert. Sorry. But um, you think especially in the last 12 months, I'd like to look at this. So the last 12 months would include that dumping in April last year. Yeah. So if you add this, this calendar year going back from today might it'd be tough to top it, at least in my lifetime. I mean, this is, this has been pretty nuts. Right. I'm tired uh, of shoveling. Yeah, me too. Uh, my wife actually got up because she had to work at 745. So she woke up at 5 a.m. the day after the big dump that we got this week and shoveled the whole driveway by herself because she's a big, strong Norwegian. And you're a terrible husband. I, <laughs> I woke up and it was done. So it's not my fault. Wow. It's not my fault if it's done before I wake up. Wow. So you took like some Benadryl to make sure you slept through it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Plug my ears with cotton the night before so that I didn't. <laughs> oh, hear I had no idea you were out there. Oh, yeah. No, I just really wanted restful sleep. This yeah. <laughs> so we've got a little bit of news to jump into before we get to our feature this week. We are continuing our food interviews for the month of February. Who are we talking to this week? Ryan Castellans. And if you like food and actually if you just like listening to somebody who is about as enthusiastic about what he does as anybody I've ever met, Ryan is your guy. So you'll want to listen to this one. He is just so excited about what he does. It's like contagious. It was really a lot of fun to talk to him. And this guy, he's a young guy. I uh, might be like 24, 
He started Discourse Coffee, and now he started the 108 Collective down in Sturgeon Bay. And he's just really passionate about what he does, and he wants to like bring that to other people. And he's really excited about opening this new thing in Sturgeon Bay. So that energy is contagious, and I, I hope people like talking to him. Right. So before we jump into our feature, why don't we just get through the news? Uh, we got some political news. There's primaries coming up, right? Yeah. So there are three. Um, there's there's the April elections coming up and with uh, races all around the county. But there are three communities that have primaries where they have to narrow down the field. So on February 19th, the town of Sevastopol will narrow down their list of candidates from five to four for the town board. And then for the Gibraltar School Board and the Southern Door School Board, they also both have five candidates running. They need to narrow that down from five to four, and then that will proceed. Those four will proceed to the April elections. So in this Friday's Pulse, you'll see we have sent questionnaires to all of those candidates, and they all sent back responses. I think they all did. One of them may not have. I, I can't remember what happened at press time yesterday. But they... Then a longer version, because we asked each of them 10 questions. We're printing three in the paper, and all 10 will go online. So if you are a voter at for the Southern Door School Board, Gibraltar School Board, or the Sebastopol Town Board, and want to know more about the candidates that are running in your district or township, um, go to doorcountypulse.com or pick up the paper this Friday, and you'll get a better taste of what everyone's all about before you vote next Tuesday. Cool. Uh, do primaries happen pretty regularly in Door County, or is this, uh, is this a good thing? Yeah, yeah, they they happen. There's usually one or two. You know, a lot of these races, you'll be lucky if there's anyone even contesting an election. Right, I that know. Was a, that's what I was asking. Yeah, and then uh, a couple of weeks before the deadline, Southern Door actually put out a call for people to become candidates for school board because they didn't they didn't have enough even to fill the seats. So it's great that people are stepping forward and running, even if you lose more people on the ballot, more people answering these questions puts more ideas on the table. Right. And it gets more conversation started in the communities too. Yeah. I mean, even if you don't, if you don't make it past the primaries, at least you, you have started the conversation in your, in your area. Yeah. Uh, also in this week's news, we have a couple different things, uh, revolving high school athletics. Yeah. There's an article about referees in this week's Pulse, correct? Yeah. A few weeks ago, the WIAA released, I don't know if you'd call it a column or a press release, basically urging fans, parents, officials, and players to be kinder to referees because they say it's been getting out of hand and now they're struggling to get referees to sign up and, and be officials for high school sports. And they say in part because of the attitude of parents and the environment at some of these games. So we asked Matt Pottist, our um, kind of resident sports writer, um, to talk to a few referees and athletic directors. He was able to get in touch with some um, some of those athletic directors did not respond. So a call out to those who don't respond. We want to hear your opinion. So answer our calls. Um, the, the referees in this community, one of them, Jeff Shartner has been up here for a long time he used to play basketball up here. And what he told Matt and he told me is like, nah, some of these guys just need a thicker skin. He goes, you know, as a veteran referee, you kind of tune it out. Some of these younger guys just aren't able to tune, tune that out as much. Some of the vitriol that comes at them. And, you know, I used to coach until about 10 years ago and I played in high school. And honestly, I feel like the atmosphere in high school gyms is much calmer than it used to be. I think, I mean, we used to, you used to have fans going back and forth. The, the home and away fans would just chant at each other. It would get pretty ridiculous sometimes, sometimes mean. Um, you would, people would holler at the referees and maybe because the gyms aren't as full as they once were, because there's so many extracurriculars, 
maybe the referees just hear it more. They notice it more when it than it was back when it was smaller crowds. But I know from the games I've been to, it is nothing like the vitriol that used to be thrown out there. And that's a good thing. But I, I think people maybe overblow what it is. I mean, it's always annoying. Parents yell. I was a coach. Parents yell at me. You know, you get crap. You hear it all from behind you. But it's like, it's what you sign up for, in my opinion. Like, that's, that's the job. But if they're having trouble getting the referees, I guess you've, you've got to find, find out how to groom them. I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of what I was getting at. When you first told me this, you, you were talking about how the, the referee population up here is aging and there aren't people lining up to replace them. And you, you need, obviously, younger referees because you need them, you know, moving around and, and being physically able to do the job. Yeah. So it's important to keep replacing referees as they get to, you know, retirement age and stuff like that. And at first I was like, oh, I understand that, you know, it, it's the, the population isn't that huge up here. We struggle to replace all sorts of positions all the time. Because so of age. Is, yeah. It's so, not just referees, it's all over. Right. So this is just another facet of that. But then when you talked about how it come a lot of it comes down to not wanting to deal with the parents who are who are rude. I get that. So as a younger person, my thoughts would be like, I wanna if I wanna be a referee, it's because I wanna facilitate uh, fair games for the students that the students have every opportunity possible to compete in in a fair way or in, yeah. in, a, in, a, in, a, in the most professional way that 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 we can facilitate for them. I don't want to deal with with parents yelling at me beyond that because it's not about me and the parents. It's about the students and making sure that they are having the best opportunity they they can. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I totally get that, and maybe that. Maybe that's part of the younger mindset in where it's like, I, I shouldn't have to deal with that because that's, that's a dumb extra part of the job. It's not my main focus, which is to facilitate the, the learning of the student. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, it's going to be a tough one to solve because yeah, a, just our population isn't leading to a lot of younger folks. And if you're younger, there's better options than part-time refereeing. Um, but if you love the sport and want to be involved, it's a great way to stay involved. I've done some refereeing in middle school and, and things like that. And actually anybody should actually ref at least one game in their life because you're going to shut your mouth a lot more. <laughs> um, it's really hard to do. Uh, it's, I really struggled to do some of the basic duties of a referee and it, it did make me a little more understanding of what the, the refs have to go through. I think um, maybe that should be a test for parents before you can attend a game. You have to referee a, a youth game and then decide if you really want to <laughs> bark at the officials. Right. I mean, but there's bigger problems with parents. I'd say, like, what the parents do to the officials is nothing compared to what parents do to coaches in terms of lobbying for playing time, um, you know, going around their backs and things like that with, with the administration and things and, and really sometimes not setting the right example for their own kids and being somewhat childish themselves. I think those are, are bigger issues than hollering at referees because that's, that's just what happens. I mean, um, it's part of life. Like, things aren't always easy so <laughs> well no that those types of things happen across the board with academia i mean it yeah. happens in the theater department it happens in any of the sports parents want their children to be treated fairly and their barometer for what is fair is different across the board i mean the other thing i think that you deal with is when the population gets smaller when the when the class size gets smaller each student becomes more precious in their parents eyes so that's when you start getting things like uh, stepping over those boundaries and, and not trusting in the coaches or the teachers or the directors to do what is best for 
the team for the show, so on and so forth, stepping over those boundaries and then being like, well, you have to do this for my student because it's, it's my student and I want yeah. my student to, and, and those problems I think expound upon themselves when the population gets smaller because voices are, it, it's easier to hear the voices. And also each family feels that they have more of a stake in the program because the program is smaller. Mm-hmm. And I think so, so often the, the emphasis, not from the coaches always, although some of them are this way, but from the parents, I mean, they focus on wins and losses and their kids playing time and all this stuff. And that is such a, a minor part of it. And I know it's hard. It's hard to lose. I've been on some really bad losing teams and that were still great experiences, but like that, the emphasis that parents have on those numbers, the wins and losses, that's not the most important part about what those kids can learn and what a, what a coach can do for a program. And hopefully, you know, I shouldn't even say hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I, I would love to see that, that dynamic change and watch parents look at like the, the total program. But I also understand the selfishness that people have and selfishness in a good way. Like you're supposed to care about your kid. Your kid comes home unhappy um, or disappointed in his play, your, your natural instinct. And I'm not a parent yet, so I don't know how I would handle it. But like, I think I would really struggle with it of going, all right, that's good for him. Like this is good for him or her to work their way through a problem. They shouldn't come home totally happy every single day because that working your way through something, proving yourself or you know, finding your way to contribute when you're maybe not the best, that's part of the process. Like we all learn from the disappointment and from the hard times. And too often nowadays, parents don't want to trust the coach to like handle that and get them to that point. They just want to take away that, that hard time as it's happening. And you're eliminating a great learning opportunity because very few people learn anything from success. You learn from the struggle. Well, and the, the struggle and the hard work is the majority of the learning experience. Um, again, my, my background in this is theater and I work with the Gibraltar students for the, the theater program there. And for me, it's all about the process. The, the product at the end, the play will be good if the process is involved and is hard. I, yeah. you, you have to work hard and then we'll get to a good show. Right. It, it, the, the show at the end isn't the thing that matters. It's all of the rehearsal time and, and how each student is, is showing up to rehearsal and pushing themselves to be better than they were last rehearsal. Always coming back and trying harder each day. The, the other side of it, too, is that I was raised not growing up when my parents would, would talk to me about like what I was going to do when I get older. They never pressured me into any one career field or anything like that. I was never groomed to be an athlete or a doctor or a lawyer or anything. My parents brought me up to work hard and that was it. They said, I don't care what you do as long as you try your best. And I think that that shows in the fact that I went to college for theater and got a theater degree and not, you know, something like a business degree or a marketing degree. But I went and I did my best and I tried my hardest and I've gotten to do all sorts of things that I never would have been able to do if I had gone into other things. I wouldn't be here where I am now. Uh, I wouldn't have met my wife if I didn't do that. And it's all because I was, I was brought up to work hard. And I think that that is the same way. So when you were talking about not having children and not knowing how you would approach that, I feel like, and again, I don't have children either, but I feel like my approach would be if my student comes home unhappy, my first question is going to be, are you trying your hardest? Are you going and are you working hard? And if they say yes, then that's where I'd contact the coach or the director or the teacher and say, Hey, is my student showing up and trying hard? If they're, if, if they're doing what you believe to be their best work, if they're trying their hardest and it's still not working out, then that's where, you know, that's where I would intervene. 
but if if I get the call back from the teacher, I'm like, no, I know that they have way more potential than that. They're they're not showing up. They're not trying their hardest. That's where then I get to step back and be like, all right, well, let's reevaluate this with my student rather than jumping down the coaches or the director's throat. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I mean, like I, I grew up as a kid who was, was kind of late to sports and then fell in love with it. But I stunk when I started and we'd have like 20 players. And I was I was that kid who got like, you know, the last 15 seconds of a quarter yeah, token time going. But I didn't deserve anything more than that. I wasn't very good. And it but, and like some people are like, well, you should get equal playing time in middle school and, and even in high school. There are some parents who argue for that. But I'm like, man, that felt really good then to work my way up and earn that playing time. That's what that's what um, kind of transforms your opinion of yourself. Not, hey, we're all equal. But like, OK, I'm not as good as those guys. I got to catch up. I got to pass them by. Um, but I could I could rant about that for a while. On a more positive note, let's talk about Gibraltar girls basketball. Um, well, this I think is a good example of working hard and, and making strides. Yeah. I mean, this is a Gibraltar girls basketball program used to be horrible. I mean, losing for years at a time, like every game for years at a time. And coach Josh Kapinski and his players and some of his assistant coaches at Gibraltar have built a consistently competitive team that can compete with much bigger schools. And that now has just earned for the first time that I can remember, maybe ever, the number one seed in the regional come playoff time. Their first game will be in February 22nd. But I, I started my coaching career the same year as Josh Kropinski at Gibraltar. I was doing freshman boys. He was doing JV boys. And, you know, both of us didn't really know what the heck we were doing, being entrusted with all these young kids. But he's been with it now for almost 20 years and um, has worked with that school at Every level on the boys' side, he's been a boys' varsity coach. He was an assistant guys' coach. Even after he was varsity, he came back and just loves the game and loves being around it. He's so good with the kids. He's so good with, even when he has bad teams, like I, if you asked anybody who ever played with him, they'd probably come around saying they love Coach K. And now he's got a program. I think they've won like 11 straight games. They're just, they're, they're a great team. And I'm really excited for them and really excited for what they might do in the playoffs. And And it's not... It's hard to explain this stuff. People go to schools where you are good at sports, but like Gibraltar was so bad for so long, it was almost an embarrassment to play a sport for a lot of these kids. So the, the understanding how big a difference that mindset is to, to turn that tide, to make kids believe in themselves and believe that they can, they can win and compete and are good enough and deserve to have that success, that's a huge battle. And, and he's created a program where now you don't have to have that battle every year now because they've seen kids come before them and girls before them care about the sport, work their butts off and have success. Well, and that's the thing too. I mean, when you pick up a new program, you, uh, it might take a while, but you eventually do create a revolving door where you have people who are two, three years into the program who know how it works and are able to welcome freshmen in and the freshmen very quickly get acclimated to it. So, so once you've got four years under your belt, now everybody that's coming through that program has people above them who have been in that program. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that really helps. It can be slow going at first, but once you've got everything really nailed down, it's, it's that revolving door effect. Every time you're, you're losing seniors but gaining freshmen, the people in the middle know what the program is, and, and it just pushes forward like a train. Yeah, and when you're starting to try and change that, it's, it's on you as a coach and a coaching staff and, and maybe the school to change that attitude. But once you do it for a few years, now the players pass that on. 
And it's not as incumbent on you to just convince kids that they can compete, that they can be good. Instead, the, the team and the, the class ahead of them teaches them like, this is what's expected of, of you from an effort standpoint. And this is what's possible from you as a, from a success standpoint. And that just trickles down. And yes, you have, and the most impressive thing is when you have like, even bad schools occasionally have a talented group come through. They don't always have a lot of success. They maybe don't have the coaching, the culture. Um, but even when they do have success, okay, that group comes through. Was it just a talented class or have you changed the culture? Because if right. it's just a talented class, they come through and then it dips right back down. But the, the test of a, of a coach and a program is those kids go through, but the culture remains and the next group maybe doesn't achieve the same level of success without that talent, but they still compete. You're still up there in that window and that, that culture passes on to the next time you have a, a great group of talent. Now you can really achieve. And that's what they've done at, at Gibraltar with that women's program is they've created a culture and, and that's why they can consistently compete. Well, and I think it's easier to take a failing program and turn it into a successful one than it is to change a good program into a better program, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially if it means drastically changing that culture or upending traditions that have been around with that program for a while. Um, Because not only that that four-year time period still, I think, holds true, but it's different because if you come in and change a good program into a better one, you're going to have four years of people saying, but it wasn't like that before. Mm -hmm. But once those four years are done and you've got your your freshmen graduating as seniors, now you've got everybody coming in and they don't know that it used to be different. Now it's just, this is the program. And I feel like that can be almost harder and, and, and fully take those four years than when you've got a bad or failing program that you're now making into a successful one because people are going to jump on the bandwagon because they don't want to be the failing program anymore. Mm -hmm. Like Southern door high school. I mean, they've had a long tradition of, of really good, highly competitive basketball teams going back on the men's side, at least 20, 20 years on the women's side uh, really started in the early 1990s for that school. That next hump is getting back to the state tournament. They went in 98, I believe. And they've had some really good teams, especially these last few years. And it's just an expectation there. They have, they keep churning out thousand point scores. And Pete Claflin was a coach down there for a long time, created a really great program. And then now Derek Hockey has continued that. Um, and then, you know, their run now, you know, they're in a tougher division and, and getting over the hump at that next level is, is going to be a big shot for them to, to take it through the sectional round. But um you know, it's going to be fun to watch as the playoffs come down for a team like Southern Door on the on the guy side, Gibraltar on the girl side, um, and see what they can do in the postseason. Right. Any other news this week before we jump into our interview with Ryan? No, I think that'll cover it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Miles, for chatting with me. We're going to take a break here, but when we come back, we will jump right into your interview with Ryan. All right. Look forward to it. They call themselves the Stradivarius Builders of Sturgeon Bay because the guys at Palmer Johnson were artists in wood and metalwork. Anything you imagine, they did it so beautifully well. The first fishermen came down the lake from Mackinac Island who worked their way along the north shore of Lake Michigan. And they came because of the whitefish. The whitefish were abundant. In 1945, 2,000 German prisoners of war came to Door County and picked cherries for just one harvest season. Peninsula Filmworks is dedicated to telling the stories of Door County, past, present, and future. 
To learn more about the history of shipbuilding in Sturgeon Bay, to see how the Cherry became a Door County icon, or to watch the peninsula's last remaining fishermen brave the waters to haul in thousands of pounds of whitefish daily, and the many other incredible stories produced with the Door County Visitor Bureau, visit doorcounty.com slash ourdoorcounty. All right, we're doing a little something different on the podcast today. Um, I'm Miles Danhausen Jr. I'm joined today by Aaliyah Kidd, our multimedia manager and food writer at yep. the Pulse, mm-hmm. and Ryan Castellez of Discourse Coffee and the new 108 Creative Collective down in Sturgeon Bay. Welcome, Ryan. Great to have you here. Thank you guys so much. Pleasure to be here. Well, let's start a little bit with Ryan. You opened, um, you've been in Door County for a few years now. Yeah. And last year you opened, I think it was last year, you opened Discourse Coffee Shop. Give us a little background on yourself and what brought you to Door County and what made you get into food scene here. Absolutely. So I went to college in a little town in Northeast Iowa, Decorah. um, And my girlfriend at the time, she was a social work major. She was doing a practicum in Chicago, and it was insane, and she needed to cool down. I was a psych major. I knew I wasn't going to have a job, so I needed to figure <laughs> out my future. So both of us kind of needed this little rest period, and her best friend had a place in Sturgeon Bay, grew up here, um, and linked us up with a little cottage in Sister Bay. And I was like, hey, if you guys want a place to cool down for a summer, like you can live in this cottage and probably find work in Door County. And so we were like, yeah, that sounds rad. <laughs> and you know what I remembered about Door County was coming up here as a kid. So it was like, oh, Abby, there's cherries <laughs> and there's Wilson's and there's this place with goats, you know, and I, I was so stoked about coming up to this like dreamland, you know, for a couple, a couple months. And we got up here and my first job, I worked at Raleigh's Bay um, and it was a really good intro into the community. Pretty soon I found myself at Wild Tomato. And then at the end of my time there, I loved it. I had fallen in love with beer. I had fallen in love with Door County. And so we were kind of trying to figure out a way to get up here for another year and just see how it goes. So I applied for a job at Beers At and I got this job beer buying and managing and came up the next year to do that. And from that point on, I was kind of just sucked in, you know, I was just enamored with this place and with these people. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do something in this community that was going to be fun and unique and creative and, and contribute in a positive way. Um, I had been so inspired by, and something that's so unique about Door County is every business you walk into, the person behind the counter, six seven, eight times out of 10 is the owner, you know, or or one of the people who have dreamed up that project. And, you know, Mm -hmm. my availability to huge thinkers and huge ideas was probably more vibrant here than it would have been in Chicago or New York where you're just working with the employees, you know? So that was so inspiring. And I knew I wanted to be a part of that community. And so then for me, it was just figuring out, okay, how, how do I do that? Um, And I had been a musician my whole life. I had been in choir my whole life. So when I came up here and wasn't in a choir and wasn't making music, that like creative side of me was just withering. And I, <laughs> I, I felt like I needed to do something to express because I've always been a very hard on my sleeve person for, for better or for worse. <laughs> and so I knew I needed to do something to get out. Um, and so my first thought was to do a restaurant. And then I was like, wait, Ryan, you can't cook. Uh, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, well, we could do a bar and... Liquor licensing in Door County is um, a crazy thing. Um, So then I was like, well, I do make really good coffee and 
I, nobody is really doing this. So I went on about a well, when six you say month. Really doing this? What is that? So this would shops, be right? this would be what uh, we've been calling fourth wave coffee. So okay. um, when you look at the movement of coffee. Um, in America, historically, you start with the first wave, which is like Folgers, Maxwell House. It's coffee purely created for the sake of convenience. Really high quality stuff. So beautiful. <laughs> we use only Folgers at the shop. That's a lot. Um, um, then you go into what we call second wave. So second wave, the most common second wave shop would be Starbucks. Um, it's kind of this balance between convenience and a little bit of quality. You're, you're starting to get a little bit out there, but you it's made for you. You know, you don't have to make mm-hmm. it at home in your pot. Um, Third wave coffee is where we've been as an industry for about the last 20-ish years. Um, And third wave coffee is really a focus on quality and transparency. Bearded Heart here in Bailey Sarver is a third wave shop. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have a shop that's just really focused on really great coffee and putting out amazing Cortados, Cappuccinos, really beautiful drip coffee that's representative of the grower and the origin. That's third wave. So what we're doing now, and what I say when I say not many other people are doing this, is is fourth wave coffee. And what fourth wave coffee is to us is using all of the basis of third wave coffee. We still want it to be incredibly high quality coffee. We still want it to be transparent. We still want to know our roaster, know our grower. But we're taking that quality and we're using it as a baseline. So instead of that being what we're striving for, it's where we start. And everything that we fill in is experience. So our goal as a fourth wave shop is to create things that make people feel things, remember things, think about things um, that give them a flavor or an idea that they've never tried before, smelt before. You know, we want to take really delicious things, but then give you something novel and something unique and something fun and something that you'll remember. And to us, that's the place of any establishment that you're going out to spend money and be at, right? Because we can all cook and make coffee at home. So I want people to come and feel like they're being entertained. I want people to come and feel like they're getting something that is completely unique and completely novel and completely discourse. Um, And and that kind of fourth wave idea of experience-centric coffee and memory-centric coffee is kind of what we're doing that's new. Okay, so... I need to learn how to explain what I do as well as you just rattled off what you do. Like, exactly. That was an incredible run of bio into here's exactly what my business is all about. Mine is much more stuttered all over the place. <laughs> I go on tangents. That was amazing. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yeah. I've had to, you know, a lot of people wonder, you yeah. know, a lot of people are like, what do you do? Like, what, what is fourth wave coffee? And when you make a statement like that, right, you have to be able to mm-hmm. justify it because yes. there's, there's so many people. And, and, you know, we've realized from the beginning that in the coffee world, there's kind of two sects, right? There's a ton of purists. There's a ton of third wave purists who look at what we do and they're like, are you kidding me? What mm-hmm. are you doing to that natural Ethiopian, you know, Guji that's so beautiful by itself? You know, and then there's also people who are like, wow. Like, I've never seen somebody do something like that with coffee. And and so it's been a lot of learning how to navigate that. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit. I mean, you open Discourse, and you're doing, I guess, um, for coffee what um, molecular uh, gastronomy did for food at a place like Alinea. We're trying, yeah. And right. mm-hmm. so what is, but for a lot of our listeners, probably are like, it's, it's going yeah, over their head, yeah. I'm guessing. So <laughs> if you haven't been there and, and haven't experienced, what's, uh, tell us 
tell somebody what that is when you're actually going to get the coffee. What Absolutely. does this mean when you're doing this experience Absolutely. thing? Or yeah, so we there's a couple of drinks that I could reference. Um, one really fun one that we have. Uh, two really fun ones that we have on our winter menu right now. Um, Aliyah got to try the Hunt, and and that's one of the ones that we have on our winter menu. Um, and it's matcha based, but it's really designed from the ground up uh, to evoke the feeling of a winter walk. But I think winter hikes are so special and unique in the mind uh, that I wanted to create a drink that would kind of simulate that feeling uh, of going on a winter hike, both in taste and aroma. Um, And so what we did was we created a drink that utilized forced flavors. So we're using cedar tea. It's locally forged, boiled, and then we brew it as tea. We're using rowan berry simple syrup. Rowan berries are berries here that are in every woodwalk you go on. They're the little red ones. Um, we're using matcha, which provides grassiness. We're using burnt rose, which provides smoke, which is something that we very much associate with the woods and the forest. Um, we're using frankincense, which is a super Christmassy, wintry aroma that when you smell that, you're brought to winter time. And so all of these elements put together and composed in a glass, when you taste it, the idea and the hope is that it starts to evoke that feeling. It brings you to the woods. Um, we have another one on our menu now called Jesus of Suburbia. And it's a, a collection of Christmas cookies. It's basically a Christmas cookie platter, but our interpretation of it. So it's four steamers. Each steamer is designed to taste exactly like a popular Christmas cookie. Um, and these were inspired when I was a kid. Growing up, I was in a punk rock band and we were awesome. Uh, and every time we would go over to my, my buddy's house and his mom, Mrs. Rivard, would make us this spread of Christmas cookies, an unbelievable spread. Uh, And I wanted to create a drink that portrayed that level of joy and excitement I felt when I saw that cookie tray. Uh, And so we plate this with four steamers, and then you get your single origin espresso. Uh, So we have chocolate chip, windmill, oatmeal raisin, and then Oreo balls with a little cream cheese filling. Uh, So we got all of those represented in steamer form and then espresso on the side. And so that's kind of, you know, a lot of what we do is uh, storytelling. You know, it's, it's picking our stories and then how do we tell these through flavor and aroma and beverage? Huh. That's a different approach. Yeah. So when I went in there and I tasted <clears throat> the hunt, I, I did really, it was very unexpected and all of those flavors were so interesting to me. And when you kind of, we were telling the story of the hunt and like taking a winter hike and I don't really hunt, so it's not like I really have that <laughs> association, but when I was, I've never hunted it, by the way. Okay. <laughs> when I was thinking about it later, I was like, it was more, I did have that feeling of like when you're hiking in the woods and that cold air hits your lungs, it was like that invigorating freshness and feeling and smell. And it was like, it did really kind of tell that story. And I really did think like, wow, that is really representative of that. And I've never really tasted something like that. And that's really your goal. And I think that that is awesome and incredible. Um, And then the other one I tasted was Montezuma, which was kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum as far as flavors go. Totally. And it was very warm and spicy, um, had habanero tincture, had some orange and vanilla flavor, and it was just so velvety, but also had some grittiness to it. So it was really a different experience. So drinking those two drinks together was such a big contrast, and it was kind of like coming away with two different experiences from that one visit. I think the biggest thing for us is like when you go to our menu, like our craft menu, like those drinks. You know, everything on there is purposely big, bold, brash, weird, wild. You know, that's that's where we go with that menu. 
if you don't want that in a coffee experience, that's fine. We're still here for you. You know, and we have chais, we have mochas, we have lattes. We work incredibly hard to make sure that our espresso is dialed in. So if you want to come in and get a shot, single origin espresso and a cortado every day, or come in and get a pour over or come in and get a coffee brewed sous vide every day, you know, come in, hang out with us. You know, but if you want to take it to that next step, if you want to have some crazy experiences, we can do that too, you know? And so we really want to provide that balance where we're not alienating anybody because that's never the goal. Coffee is about community, you know? And that's why we called the shop Discourse is this is all about conversation. You know, there are going to be people who come in and there are going to be people who say, wow, like I did feel all of this stuff. And then there are going to be people come in and they're going to be like, dude, you're crazy. I just tasted something, <laughs> you know? And, and both are totally fine and awesome. The point is not that we're right. You know, the point is, let's talk about this. Like, yeah. can, can beverage make you feel? Can beverage tell a story? You know, and if we can figure that out together as a community, then we've built something really special. But it, it doesn't exist just with us in a vacuum putting out drinks. You know, it exists in us as a part, a living part of this community that's been so much to us. You know, how can we together work to further coffee and further beverage. How did you learn everything and, and come to have the, the depth of knowledge that you do? I, mean, I remember the first time I met you, you were bartending at Beerzat and uh, you know, you go in and you're like, all right, who's this young kid? I mean, you, what are you? <laughs> I'm 25. 25. At the time you were like 22, 21, uh -huh. but you had the knowledge about beer of somebody much older. You, and you have, you seem to have like this just innate curiosity um, and enthusiasm for what you're doing. I mean, I've been to a lot of bars <laughs> at a lot of times <laughs> of the year in Door County. And there are certain times the bartender are just like, all right, I'm just, I'm just here. Uh -huh. But you always have this energy about you and you can, and you can see it now with coffee. So where did, uh, where did your knowledge come from? Is it just diving in all the time and a lot of studying? Where do you go? It's a lot of studying. It's a lot of mentors, you know, with beers at and with beer, Brit, Uncle was really the guy who was for me, like, that source of like, wow, like this is so cool. And for me, once I get hooked, my curiosity takes over and I just go. Um, but it's, it's getting hooked. You know, that, that is that first thing. Coffee for me was, I got hooked on coffee. I never drank coffee ever until my sophomore year of college. I was doing a student teaching practicum in Gallup, New Mexico, and I was teaching choir and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I needed coffee. Uh, shout out to teachers. Um, yeah. I, I needed coffee. And so I started drinking it out of necessity. I got to follow that by this incredible experience to go to Italy for five months. And I drank a ton of espresso. So when I came back to the States, I was like, I need this in my life. You know, I got a little steam espresso machine and the rest was kind of history. But there was a guy in Milwaukee named Aaron Cleveland, I got the opportunity to work at a shop there called Valentine Coffee Roasters, which is awesome uh, in the Milwaukee area. Um, and Aaron Cleveland was the manager of the shop and he was the most patient, loving, skilled teacher any new barista could ever ask for. You know, he walked me through every step. He, he made me even more passionate about coffee and about what we can do to, to better coffee. Um, when I came up here... It sounds really corny and I always like wince a little bit at myself when I say it, but I got a ton of inspiration for what we do at Discourse through actually a TV show, through Chef's Table. Um, oh, sure. I, I saw... It's not cheesy, that show is It's amazing. amazing. It's, it's amazing. And it's, it's really, I think in a lot of ways, that show has changed food culture in America and David Gulp should be very proud mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. um, but the, when I started watching that show, I saw these people who were 
expressing themselves through food. And I had never seen that before. Like growing up, my parents were amazing, but like a fancy dinner for us was like Olive Garden, Texas Roadhouse, you know? So I had never seen food like this, you know, food where these chefs were like, this is my life on a plate for you to eat. And I'm like, wow, I love eating. I love (laughs) drinking. I love storytelling. Like, I wonder if I could learn how to do this. And, and so a lot of it was reading a lot, a lot, a lot of reading. And it was, you know, for what we do at Discourse, it's a pretty wide swath of, of reading. And if you come into the shop, you'll see books on the tables that span from cookbooks to cocktail manuals to tiki bar books to uh, books from the Savoy Hotel in 1920. You know, we're, we're really looking at a pretty wide swath of literature and trying to figure out the techniques and the styles and the ideas that make the most sense for our practice. Um, and so it is, at the end of the day, it's a lot of reading, it's a lot of watching. Honestly, Instagram is one of the most powerful tools for some in this field right now um, because you're, you know, we talk about going to restaurants and in, in the restaurant industry or in the beverage industry, you study menus when you go to a restaurant. I study every menu I look at. Um, Instagram is like the world's menus on one feed, except they're only showing you the dishes they're most proud of. It's unreal. So the amount of inspiration you can glean, even from flavor combinations, where I'll just be scrolling through Instagram and I'll see something from Noma and be like, wow, they're doing these two flavors together. That's crazy. I wonder if this would work in a drink, you know? So it's kind of taking this inspiration either from the world outside or from experience. I'll have a a day that I'm like, I felt I felt really good about that day. I want to make a drink that feels like I feel right now, you know, and it's just taking everything we've learned from, from reading and from practice. And I've had the opportunity to do a couple stages. Um, I got to go to Chicago. Well, just for people who are unfamiliar, a stage yeah. is essentially, um, free forced labor. No, uh, yes. uh, it's, it's a, I was a slave, yes. <laughs> but in uh, a lot of kitchens, it's not as familiar in small towns, but in cities, generally a chef who's trying to learn from other people or a young ch- person trying to become a chef, um, will just go work for free just to kind of absorb the environment or, or just learn from another chef. And essentially it's a good way to name drop yourself to that chef for the next job you're seeking. So So we, I did a stage, two stages last winter, one at Spiaggia in Chicago and one at Elska. And, um, I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate to be able to do that. And just working and learning behind bars like that behind people who know more. You know, I think for me, I am always looking for the person who is better than me. And, and I think that's what all of us should be doing as creatives is, is always looking for that next, you know, because as soon as we're okay, we stop. The complacency sets in. Absolutely. You know, so that's, that's why I try to go out. That's why we close discourse, you know, is we don't close discourse because we're need a break and we're tired. You know, we, we close discourse because we need to continue to learn to give to this community um, because otherwise we'll stall. When you say we close discourse, you don't mean like we close the business. No, we close it every winter. Um, and, and that time varies. You know, this, this, this winter will be closed February through mid-April. Um, and then we'll relaunch in April and we have some super exciting plans for, for next year. So 
So my experience in food was very similar, uh, combining ingredients like rum and Coke. Um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes Jack the and Coke. The synthesis of flavors is just truly miraculous. Occasionally, we'd get really wild and throw a lime in there. Oh, dude. Was, we were blowing Modernist. people away back in Modernist. 1999. <laughs> it, was, it was a heady time in Door County. Did you do that wapatooey? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it's, That's, uh, they're calling it punch now? Yeah. <laughs> um, I love where it's come, though. Like, if I... Even you don't have to go back that far to think like that a lot of what's happening now in Door County in food would have you just couldn't envision it 10 years ago, really. And no. Aaliyah, your your job writing about food for us every week in the Pulse is I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a bad job at all. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think like if you were doing this 20 years ago, you would be writing about maybe a, a different topping on a burger each uh-huh. week. But <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean. I think, you know, I think we have so many people to be incredibly thankful for in the Door County community over the last 15 years. There have been so many people who have come in and they've just really set these beautiful standards where they've said, you know, I could. And I think that's the thing is there's a realization at some point that it's like I could survive for the summer just putting out food. There's enough people here. They Mm -hmm. just want food for someone to stop and say, no. I want to put out things I'm really proud of. You know, that's yep. the that's the switch, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think when we see people like Berenkefer, when we see people like Jesse and Rachel doing what they're doing at the Queenway, when we pe- see people like Mike and Sarah doing this revolutionary thing they've done for the county with, with Wickman and Trixie's of, yeah. of taking the same supper club experience that people have come to expect, but really caring about it again and, yeah. and, and showing people what it can be like to truly have an immaculate experience. You know, what they've done for county dining is amazing, all of them, you know, and um, same with Mary opening Bearded Heart and Randy opening Ephraim Coffee Lab. You know, there's so many examples that we could point mm-hmm. to now. Uh, Nick and Mary definitely, you know, there's so many examples of people up here who really care, you know, and so being a being a part of that community has been incredibly humbling. Um, but it's it's so interesting to me to see that that development because it really has just been in the last decade mm-hmm. since this boom has kind of started flowing in the county. And every year I talk to more people who are like, yeah, I want to open a restaurant in Door County. Mm-hmm. When I was in Chicago at Spiaggia, I had three chefs there be like, I would love to open a restaurant in Door County. <laughs> you know, so it's just this, it's a, I think we're going into a very exciting time for, and, and then you for said, food and beverage. Just- just wait till April and see if you want. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Uh, like, hmm. <laughs> so a little bit of that. I mean, do you think that's coming because uh, the people who are visiting Door County really are asking for that or requesting that, or do you think it's a little of both? I mean, I think I, it's I, a really good question. I, yeah. I think it's coming kind of, kind of both, right? I think now it is that. Now there's a clientele up here that's expecting that almost, and mm-hmm. it's actually starting to draw new clientele, a younger clientele, mm-hmm. which is very exciting. Yeah. Um, but I think originally it was probably people getting into these spaces and, and really going forward with a new mentality of, I like, wow, tomato, you know, mm-hmm. let's take this same beautiful location, but do something that utilizes both of our skills. You know, mm-hmm. they were both bakers. They had both been in restaurants for a long time, um, but was not a, a corporate chef. And so it made sense. You know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll do some flavors. You make some dough. Uh, <laughs> you, you run the front of house, you know, and, and it's, it's seen passionate businesses open here, you know, businesses that were really opening as a passion project. It was what they loved. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the start of the switch. Mm-hmm. And then people grab onto that and they're like, oh, wait, 
Dwarkani food is good. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Mm-hmm. You know, and then their standard of what they want up here rises. And so everything rises with it. Um, from my perspective, coming from Madison, <clears throat> I kind of saw how people started to be really interested in that quality of ingredients yep, and absolutely. that local food movement too. Like, where does your food come from? And yeah, five, 10 years ago, people weren't really asking that question. So I think that's kind of gone hand in hand. And obviously there's a lot of local farmers up here and people who in our generation too, who have started to go into farming or creating their own CSA shares when they haven't necessarily came from a farming or um, food background. So I think that's great too. It's incredible. I mean, I think, you know, for the last couple of years, I've really thought like this is the perfect place for a restaurant. I mean, you know, we are surrounded by water filled with fish. We are surrounded by amazing farmers. You know, what what they're doing at Wasita, what they're doing at Dorkarma, what they're doing at Cold Climate, mm-hmm. Flying Tractor, Hidden Acres. You know, we that's like, what, five farms and I could get to them all in 30 minutes? That's crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and, and all of them are doing incredible work. You know, organic practices. If they can't get certified, they're doing it in terms of just beautifully done farming. You know, it's it's inspiring and it's humbling and it's motivating to see those people working so hard to give ingredients that then chefs and people like myself can use, you know. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that is the basis of the food up here. And, and why it's so good is that there are passionate farmers that are allowing the chefs to express themselves through food. And in general, that's like the next step I see is is us getting better at connecting more of the restaurants to those growers. Absolutely. There's been, it's so much better now than it was five or six years ago. I ran a restaurant. My dad had a garden. I grew up gardening in, in my dad's like two acre plot. And I was always like, oh, you, I can't do enough with that. That's like, I need a case of tomatoes, a case of lettuce. I need to know when it's going to get yep. here. It's easier to order it from Cisco. And it's like yep. really embarrassing to look back because my dad was like slaving over this stuff. And then I wasn't even trying to use it. But now <laughs> so many places are trying to do that. And no, you may not be able to get everything that way. It might not be sustainable. The season's so short up here. So the, the, the growers for the growers, not, not the businesses, but for the growers, it's a small window when everything's coming, coming up. But there, as we get better at that, like I've, I interviewed, uh, Paul Verant in Chicago, um, one of the great chefs down there and about how he uses the, the farmer's market there. Yep. And He's like, yeah, I get on the train and I, it used to be, I had to call all these farmers and find stuff. And then it became, oh, email, make that a little bit easier. And now he's just texting back and forth on the train down to the market and just finding out like, all right, what do you guys have this week? And then he's designing his menu on that train ride and then going home with the products that they had. Um, that's a next level kind of thing to be doing. And we maybe don't have the farmers to do it, but in Chicago, all those farmers are coming in from two hours away to that market. And a lot of restaurants are better at using the most locally sourced produce there than we are. And the farmers are next door to our restaurants here. Yep. So once we get that next level connection, that it's pretty amazing. That go, there's room to grow. Absolutely. The connection that um, Trixie's has with cold climate has been amazing to watch this year. Um, the connection that the most obvious one, and I think probably the, the most thrilling example of this in Dua County right now is Dua County Underground and what Matt Chambis and Jamie Mead are doing with that program where they're working on the farm every day, you know, and, and they're growing the food that they're cooking for you, yeah. you know, and everything that they use is, is from that farm or from this area, everything, mm-hmm. you know, and that is so inspiring, you know, in, in the beverage world, 
I've thought, I've tried to think like that, and for me, I'm still trying to figure out how I replace citrus. That's a big thing in Bible. <laughs> I'm really trying to figure it out. Yeah, how, do you, uh, how do you squeeze like, that out of an <sighs> apple or something? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I found some things that are close, but we'll see if we get there. But um, it's it's been, you know, I think those connections are so important. Every year since we've opened, I've sat down with Tom Horsley at Hidden Acres, who's a phenomenal farmer mm-hmm. and, and man. And um, we've sat down and talked about, okay, what are you going to have available? And also, what can we plant maybe that you weren't going to have available that we think would be really fun to use at the workshop? Yeah. You know, and so having those relationships with the farmers where it's not even just something where it's like, I'm going to pick up what you got at the farmer's market, but it's like, okay, what could we dream up together? You know, and, and I think that's the really cool thing about having producers in the area. Dual Karma came to a farm dinner that we did with Matt. And at the end of the farm dinner, we were talking a little bit. I had bought something I do called Kren, which is inspired by a restaurant in San Francisco. And it's um, liquid encapsulated inside of a cocoa butter shell. And that's the framework for it. And anything can be put in as the liquid. Anything can be put in as the topper. Uh, and we started talking about this little weird textural sensation and I told them yeah when you have the the liquid in the cocoa butter it's basically free or safe from oxidation because you have this waxy layer and so we started talking about oh what would it be like to dry age meat in cocoa butter Mm -hmm. do we think that we could use that almost as a seal similar to how mold would form and create a seal from further oxidation you know and so these conversations are starting to happen because it's it's so local and it's so apparent and it's so here that you're making dinner for the people who, who grew it and then yeah. talking about how do we make it better next time, you know, and how cool is that, that relationship that is, I think, very inherently to a county right now. Yeah. Um, now you are branching out because everyone needs more things to do, <laughs> yeah. but you started the, the 108 Creative Collective yep. in Sturgeon Bay. Yep. So bringing this, this concept that was, you know, a, a little bit of an educational hurdle for customers in Sister Bay. Now you're trying to do something similar in Sturgeon Bay. Tell us what's going on down there. Absolutely, yeah. So I think it's kind of a, a shocker for most Nordor business owners to hear about a Nordor business owner doing something in, in Sturgeon Bay. And I'm really happy that we're starting this process because Sturgeon Bay is an incredible community. Um, it's a year-round community, uh, and it's a beautiful place to live and to work in my, in my time there. So I'm really excited about where Sturgeon Bay is headed with Bridge Up Brewing next year, with Cherry Lanes this last mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of really exciting things happening in Sturgeon Bay. The 108 is kind of this, came kind of from a, a dream in a way of, so when I first started Discourse, I, I was 23 and trying to work my way through, okay, how do I find a space, fund it, you know, figure out the legislation, you know, figure out the build out, do all of this myself. Like that's exhausting. And it's I not, think it's not easy and it's not, no, it's not clear. There's not a it great, is not clear at all. Way to do it, so. That, that starting point stops so many creatives from ever realizing their potential because it's scary as heck, you know? So the reason we decided to do the 108 is hopefully to alleviate some of those initial stresses. We're providing a space that is much cheaper. You know, we're sharing the rent of one space with three parties. Um, we're splitting the utilities. We're splitting the build out. We're helping each other on design. We're helping each other on uh, getting licensed and, and getting ready for operation. And so the Creative Collective is really designed to help young or middle-aged or old passionate people who have always had something that they want to express but have been too afraid to do it 
on their own, on their own terms. You know, the, the 108 is really meant to serve as that, that launching point. Um, an incubator, as to say, but only in the way that you, we're providing people that hopefully that first step that they feel really comfortable of like, yeah, we can do this now. And so the three concepts that are in the space occupying it for the first year, um, there's a pop-up dinner series that I'll be involved with. Um, so really what it is, is it's a, we're calling it a, a modern tavern. So it's going to be a bar, uh, two nights a week, Friday, Saturdays. Um, and we're going to do a lot of the same stuff that I did at Beers Out with the beer program. It'll be European style beers, a lot of table bottles, a very communal atmosphere. Uh, we'll be doing several wines by the bottle. And then we'll have a composed beverage program. So this is something I've been wanting to do for years and I'm incredibly excited to finally be able to do it. Um, it's going to be a no low alcohol program. And this is something that's been really catching on in other areas of the country, but hasn't quite made it to all the neck of the woods that's yet. Slash, that's a, a no slash, no low, slash low. Not, not nothing with low alcohol. Yes. Nothing with low alcohol. <laughs> Everything is going to put you in bed. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's no slash low. Um, so we'll have three to four drinks at all times that are composed, thoughtful, beautiful, using local produce and ideas, um, very much in the discourse style. That'll be no alcohol. And we'll have three to four drinks that will be low alcohol. Okay. Um, so we're incredibly excited to start introducing drinks like that to the public uh, and, and show them that style of drink making. Food-wise, it'll run kind of like a catered operation. Uh, okay. So we'll have a little pop-up kitchen that'll just throw up on Fridays and tear down on Sundays. Uh, and most of it'll be cold-prepped food um, with a couple little delicacies and bites thrown in here and there, really highlighting local produce, local meat, um, and showcasing some exciting things. I don't want to go too far into detail okay. with what we're doing that way, but I, I'm really excited about where that program's going, and I can't wait for people to come in and check it out. And who's doing that with you? Is so that it's myself um, and three other wonderful people, uh, Kindred DeGoodis, who has been up at Wickman House as one of their floor managers. Um, Kate Chacho, who actually just moved back uh, to Door County, um, but has cooked all over the country. Um, and then, yeah, no uh, yeah, she's an amazing, amazing woman and, and butcher. So part of what we'll be doing is meat work. Uh, and then uh, Rowan Moriarty, who is another phenomenal chef and thinker uh, right now working with herbology here in Door County. Um, but just his mind for synthesis and alchemy is far beyond mine. Uh, just an amazing thinker. Yeah, were you calling him your scientist? Yeah, or? he's he's our scientist chef. <laughs> um, so the other two concepts, there's a phenomenal coffee venture um, in the mornings. Probably he wants to do seven days a week. We'll keep an eye on our social media at the 108CC for updates on all of this. Um, but it'll be a fantastic third wave coffee shop. The, the gentleman in charge is a guy named Stefan Witchell. Um, he moved from Appleton, where he was the founder of Tempest Coffee Collective. Um, and he's incredibly, incredibly good at what he does. So we're excited for some amazing coffee in Sturgeon Bay. Um, and the, the third venture is an awesome uh, gallery concept called Kaplan Studio Vaults. Um, it's the actual media meteorologist from Chicago, Fox News, is coming up here and, and having a studio for his photography business. So wow. he'll be um, putting up beautiful, beautiful prints all over the space. He'll be kind of in charge of the art direction for the space. Um, and so you can come in there and visit with um, him and his lovely wife, Laura, um, five days a week and come in, talk to them about the, the work, buy some prints, uh, order some shoots, kind of do whatever you'd like uh, in that aspect. But it'll be us, us three, Heist, 
Lawless, and Kaplan Studio vaults in that space for the first year. And what is this space? What used to be there? So it's really special. Um, and the space is really what brought us to Sturgeon Bay. Um, it was most immediately a yarn store called Spin, run by the nicest woman on the entire planet, Terry, uh, who is the landlord of landlady of the space um, and is just fantastic. Um, she did that for about three, four years. It was going to be kind of a retirement gig for her, and then she realized the business is a lot of work again and was like, yeah. okay, I'm, 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 a, I'm a retire, retire. That's a um, typical Door County story. Uh-huh. Like, oh, I'll just go up there and run this business. <laughs> like, this is kind of miserable. Yep. So he, before she took it over, originally it was built as a bank. Um, and the story of the space is just amazing. It was built in 1905 as the bank of Sturgeon Bay Sawyer branch. So when Sturgeon Bay was still two places, uh, and the east side of the river was Sturge and the west side was Sawyer. Yeah. Um, you know, so it still has one of the last remnants of Sawyer emblazoned on the front. It says Sawyer branch in the stone. I mean, you can't take that away and you can't fake it. Um, you get inside and it's 14 foot copper ceilings, it's marble walls, it's original wood floor, it's an old, you know, 1920s vault. The space has been immaculately restored by Terry. Um, and, you know, we've done our part to kind of bring it even more towards the period. You know, our goal aesthetically is to make you feel like you're walking back in time. We, we want you to feel like you're coming into this kind of 1920s, 30s art deco uh, wonderland of... This is a time where you can just be here and enjoy here. You know, uh, we were joking earlier about what this podcast was going to be about. And there's so many crazy things in this world that are scary and overwhelming. And, you know, what we want to do is provide a space where you feel comfortable all the time, you know, and, and having it be open most of the day through the coffee shop and then the bar concept two nights a week. You know, we want it to kind of feel like a second home for people in Sturgeon Bay, that they can go and be comfortable and have community and, and really come to meet up or talk or have discussion. And coffee houses originally were schools of the wise. That's what they called them in the Middle East. And, and it was this idea that people were coming together to talk to communicate, to discuss and dream, and that the coffee was just the thing that was getting them to do that together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really what we want this space to be, is we want beautiful coffee, we want beautiful beer, we want beautiful composed drinks, we want beautiful art, but we need beautiful people. You know, that's the thing is we just want the people to be in this space, share this space with the community again, um, because it is such a special part about Sturgeon Bay's history uh, and, and just... Standing in that vault is crazy. It's about the size of this room. It's the smallest vault you'll ever see. And you're like, wow, Sturgeon Bay was built on this room. You know, a, you have a history. So a small vault, not a lot of money that it was built on. It was no. <laughs> right. Big bills, big bills. Big bills. <laughs> no, I'm really excited to check it out. And, and it's exciting just for Sturgeon Bay in general. You got Canara, the Indian restaurant. Absolutely. You have Get Real. You have Blue Great, Front. You have Blue Front. Like there's... Uh, and in addition to all of the classic dive bars that I love, but now you're having like Absolutely. some variety in um, the offerings that starboard, the, the new bridge. I up. love what I mean, they're doing. It's it's so exciting. I mean, it really is an exciting time to be a part of Sturgeon Bay. And you know, we're hoping to open. We're hoping for open in April. Um, we'll see. You know, there's always holds up hold right, ups with right. this stuff, but we're hoping to open in April. Um, Follow everything we're doing on the 108CC on Instagram and Facebook and Heist Doco on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, That'll give you all the information you need about these projects as they progress. Um, It's been really exciting. We've been working with some phenomenal contractors. Fred Wallen, who is 
the guy. I mean, the guy. He built everything for me at Discourse, my table, my bar, my shelfing. The woodwork? Yeah. Okay. He's, he's done a lot of the woodwork in uh, in our office, too. He's incredible. Um, and the nicest guy you ever meet. Uh, he is doing our bar in Sturgeon Bay, and the plans he has for it are pretty cool. So I'm I'm very excited to welcome people in and, and let them see the work that we've, we're putting into this space. And then Discourse in Sister Bay is in the Country Walk shops in yes. the lower level? Yes, courtyard level. So... Phone number we have online. It's my personal phone number. If you ever have trouble finding the spot, call me. It can be a hard <laughs> one to find. Um, the easiest way is to park in the Piggly Wiggly parking lot. See the Twisted Tree. It's a huge, beautiful space run by amazing people. Go down the stairs right to the right of that and take your first right and with a second door. And if you forget that, call me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> next year, we'll be open uh, probably third week of April. We'll open until the end of the month. Um, and then... Next year for Discourse Menus, we're doing a new thing uh, where every month is going to be a new theme. Uh, so we have eight themes picked out for next year. They range from serious social issues that we want to be able to have a voice on to really fun, wacky things like the game Clue personified through Drinking Bakery. Um, but every month we'll have a theme. So check online for our social media at, at Discourse Doco to see kind of how we're progressing on those themes. And, and we'll always uh, be updating people pretty frequently on, on what we're doing at the shop. Well, Ryan, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for making Door County your home. Uh, you're doing some exciting things. It's great to have you. Thank you guys so much for yeah, telling our stories because we, uh, we need a voice and you guys are a perfect one. So thank you so much. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. For more headlines, visit DoorCountyPulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.